Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there. I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to Spy Talk. Well, let's get right to it. We're going to talk about how spies work, you know, sneak around in the digital age. But first, the tempo of extremist violence is stepping up from London to East Africa and beyond putting strain on our foreign counterterrorism operations. But right here at home, we're witnessing mounting death threats to election officials and even Republicans who voted with the Biden infrastructure bill. This Taliban-like American terror wave is being driven in part by a strange cult that's taken over many in Trump's MAGA world. It's called QAnon. Jason Blazekas, director of the Center on Terrorism, Extremism, and Counterterrorism, at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, thinks QAnon has grown into a national security threat. Another really important reason why this matters is that conspiracy theories and disinformation often peddled by other governments and often peddled by individuals who may harbor malintent um, are trying to radicalize people across the board. And, and that is very dangerous, that you, you have this conspiracy theory circulating and people believe it, and you have people turn away from, from the truth and they believe things that are completely rooted in falsehood. And, and for me, that is really dangerous because it could change the contours in the way we, we think, the way we vote, the, the way we interact with each other. That's Jason Blazekas, an extremism and terror finance expert. More from him later in the show. But first, Eugene have a new wrinkle in the eternal game of spy versus spy. That's right. Spying has often been called the world's second oldest profession. I've even heard you, Jeff, use that phrase. I have. <laughs> and since its inception, it has relied on concocting a convincing but bogus story about who you are or what you're doing. However, the proliferation of data collecting technology is disrupting this centuries-old model. Mm -hmm. I talked with Dwayne Norman. During his 28-year career at the CIA, he was involved in a rethink of how to conduct espionage in a day when it's harder to cover your tracks, whether you're a case officer or an informant. Whether you are the person conducting, running, managing the intelligence operation, or you are the person who has been recruited, many of the same uh, requirements apply. The idea that you don't want your association with that, with, with, with that person or that other person or that other entity uh, revealed. You don't want your activities revealed. Uh, you don't want, um, if you happen to be in proximity or you're meeting with that person, you don't want that revealed. So I think the, the idea of cover and the idea of tradecraft uh, applies to both um, case officers and agents, operators and sources. And we're all leaving breadcrumbs everywhere we go, right? That's correct. And, increase, and increasingly so. With our uh, phones, with our cars. Right. And, and it, even more than that, though, I mean, so, so 5G is really just starting to come online. And, and, and this concept of the Internet of Things what that means is that there are going to be more exponentially uh, larger number of devices that are connected to each other and which are collecting data, whether it's a smart fridge that, that knows when to order more milk because you're out or a, um, uh, a sensor across a bridge that can monitor uh, traffic patterns um, and decide uh, how to reroute traffic. It's uh, there are the, the number of sensors and sensors and data points collecting on us and our activities is is growing exponentially. And today you already have an incredible number of data points collected on you. You drive if you drive a car that's less than five years old, it has telematics in it and that's compiling data on you. Um, and that is uh, and it doesn't require somebody to hack into a system or to uh, steal that information. Oftentimes it can be purchased. It's being sold to uh, ad tech companies. There's all kinds of ad tech on the apps on your phone. Um, so your phone, it's not just your phone. It's the apps that you've installed on your phone 
all of which collect a ton of information on you. And then, and then you have to add into that, Gene, the, the, the additional piece, which is, um, remember, it's not just the signature that you're creating. A lot of people would say, okay, well, just don't take that phone with you. Don't drive a car with telematics in it. Increasingly, we live in a society where you are, uh, um, where you are passing through areas that are passively collecting on you as well. And if you don't have a, an electronic device or a di or a credit card um, or you know some some form of digital currency to pay, um, or you don't have a car with telematics in it, or it doesn't have a, some kind of transponder, whether it's for your you, you know your uh, speed pass or your toll, uh, you know, your electric toll payer, um, then you, you have your own unique, you stand out because of your absence of a signal. And so, you know, one of the, one of the big challenges is not just how do we manage our signals, it's how do you manage the absence of signals? So you can't just go dark. That would be suspicious. I, I think I'm hesitant to say that anything is kind of universally true. There are still parts of the world and there are still places and opportunities for you to go dark. But I don't believe that that is sustainable. Um, I, I, I can't tell you when, maybe it's five years, maybe it's 10 years, but it's not gonna be 20 years. Um, and, and so it is, so the clock is ticking for how long you can, you can go dark. And then, and today, if, if you do try to go dark, if you try to, what we would say, go black and drop off of the grid entirely, you have to really think through all of the aspects of what that means. It's not something that you can plan and execute, uh, you know, in 24 hours. And it's generally something one person can't plan alone. It's going to take a team to be able to understand the environment that you are trying to transit um, and then what you need to do to be able to effectively go dark and stay dark for that period of time. So let me just counter a little bit. On January 6th, somebody went up to Capitol Hill and planted a couple of bombs. There is surveillance video of this individual and presumably investigators have been bringing to bear every other kind of technological tracking they can possibly do and they still haven't found this person. Does that show the limits of what technology can do? Absolutely. It's a, it, that's a great example of the limits of what technology can do. The problem is when you're talking about the business of espionage, you cannot make assumptions that you're going to be the guy they can't find in the database or that your picture is going to be the one that they can't locate. You have to assume the opposite, right? You, you, have, you, you, have, to, you have to assume the worst case scenario. You have to assume the competence of your adversaries and assume their ability to be able to figure those things out. I, I think it's a mistake to, you know, kind of take a chance and hope that you're not the one. Um, you know, a great, a great counterexample to that, I think is, uh, you know, look at what, for example, Bellingcat has done to uncover the two Russian FSB officers uh, who poisoned the person in uh, the UK. You know, you're able to figure out who they are. You're able to figure out their activities. You're able to to figure out where they were and what their uh, when they arrived and when they left and 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 how they traveled through the city. And and, and that's not a government entity doing it. It's a private, you know, it's a private entity able to do it. So I don't think it's safe. While while I think there is certainly it is certainly reasonable to assume that there are there 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 are plenty of holes and gaps in coverage today. I don't think you can count on those holes and gaps in coverage. So you've said it's difficult to go dark. How difficult would it be to create a new electronic identity as a cover? First off, I, I mean, I've seen the great, the, the just incredible power of the US intelligence community and the incredible officers, you know, who, who've dedicated their lives to that endeavor. And, and I will tell you, I wouldn't put anything Past them. I, I believe that our intelligence community is the best in the world. I believe that CIA, where I come from, is the best of the best. Um, and so I think that, yeah, just about anything is doable. The question is, what's is it scale, right? Can you do it at scale? Can you do it? And how, how long can you sustain it? How much, can, what, what effort does it take to build? So can you build an effective identity today? Sure, I believe you still can. I just believe that the, the work that goes into it today is exponentially greater than it was even five or 10 years ago. And we have to assume that that 
difficulty level will continue to increase. And I, and I, so I think we ask the wrong question oftentimes, Gene, when we, when we, the challenge is, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, Dwayne, you can, we can still do what we always did. We just have to do it better. Or we have to pay more attention doing it. And I think, I think that's true. I think that's true. We can still do it. I just think that it's going to be much, we're going to have to be much, much more selective in how and when and where we do that. And so the, the reality is, is the business has been fundamentally disrupted. And the answer is not to do it, do what we've always done better. You, you know, Henry Ford used to say, if I'd have given them what they wanted, I'd have given them a faster horse. And I think the challenge here is how do we not focus on building a faster horse? Our, just like the private sector, there are a number of different companies in the private sector that have been fundamentally, not just companies, there are a number of different industries that have been fundamentally disrupted in the last five or 10 years. The automotive industry is in the middle of it. If you are, if you're a, a car manufacturer and you're basing your future on building a more fuel efficient, uh, um, uh, uh, more efficient fossil fuel powered internal combustion engine, then you fundamentally don't understand where the automotive industry is heading. And there are plenty of other examples to that. Why, you know, why did Blockbuster fail and Netflix succeed? Why did Kodak fail? Why did Tower Records fail, right? These were all titans of industry in their particular space, in their particular expertise. But foundations, of what they had been doing and what they built their reputations and their businesses on for decades were broken by emerging technologies and, and changes in the society in which we live. And I believe the same thing is happening to the business of espionage. And so the more time we spend trying to find better ways to build better covers or better tradecraft, my personal opinion is that is the wrong question. Can it be done? Yes, should we be doing it? Yes, but in small numbers, while we are thinking about the radical disruption to the business and how do we replace the bulk of what we've done with new paradigms. We'll get to the new paradigm in just a minute, but first I wanna ask you about our adversaries and whether some of them have an advantage over us when it comes to harnessing some of these technologies. The Chinese, for example, marry surveillance cameras with facial recognition. Does that give them a leg up? Uh, so uh, yes and no. Uh, police states and, uh, uh, you know, I, I think have a distinct advantage over uh, the Western world and over Western open societies um, when it comes to their ability to collect data on their person, people within their country and people within their borders. Um, and their ability to um, to collect information even outside of their borders because they don't they don't play by the rules that we play by. So they they have a distinct advantage. I think wh where we counter that advantage in the West is all of the great technology, pretty much all of it, um, and all of the real disruptive thought and the vast majority of the truly creative and innovative thinkers are coming out of the West. It's so so we so yes, there are certain advantages our adversaries have over us. Um, but we have plenty of advantages over them, and it's a matter of playing to our strengths. So what is the new model? I should, I, I need to caveat what I'm going to say by saying, I, I don't know. Uh, I, what I know that it, I, but I do know that there are certain components to it. Um, one is the idea of uh, a public-private partnership, and only in the West do you have this division where it is, where you can have companies and, and private citizens who, 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 uh, are not concerned with the defense of broader national interests and not just national interests, really Western interests. When you, when you look at, for example, the debate that we're having very publicly about what is a company, for example, like Facebook's responsibility for protecting uh, uh, their platform against disinformation, we, only in the West do you see this separation between, you know, it's government's responsibility to enforce laws, to develop laws and enforce laws, and it's private sector's responsibility to kind of pursue these either noble interests or financial, purely financial interests. So what would this public-private relationship that you conceive of, what would this look like? The first thing we have to do is we have to start with a broader national dialogue about that share, the shared responsibility. The fact that 
we we that within the West, we have a shared responsibility between private sector and public sector to defend these values. And However, that, it raises a whole host of concerns if you've got private entities taking over some of these functions, doesn't it? In terms of lack of oversight, uh, there might be legal implications for them. There could be civil liberties concerns when we're talking about tech companies. Aren't yes. there a lot of red flags here? There are a ton of red flags. There are a ton of red flags and a ton of complications. The, the challenge is our model that the idea that you can have a defense department or a CIA or an FBI that can, um, in today's modern world um, of connect, connectivity and rapidly developing technology, that they can protect these broader national interests without the help and cooperation of citizens and private entities, I think is simply not sustainable. It is very idealistic to say that we should have that, that separation. And I understand the fears and concerns, and I think you're absolutely right, it's complicated. The challenges that we are working against or we are facing adversaries who don't play by those same rules. And if you try to separate, for example, Huawei from the Chinese state, if you try to separate Huawei's interests from China's interests, I think it's, I think it's very hard to do. Um, and so the idea that within China, who, who has a very different view on this separation between public and private sectors, right? they are playing by different rules. So if you equate this whole de debate to a, to a sport, and if this is a sprint to the future, well, if they're using steroids and they're using um, uh, you know, high-tech you know, clothing and high-tech shoes, and they're taking advantage of every conceivable advantage that they can get, irrespective of whatever international rules there, there may be around this, right? Then you have to ask, can we win in that competition if we play by our own rules, or do we have to recognize that the rules, the international rules for competition are different? And, and while it is very noble to talk about the separation between public and private interests, I think it is naive to think that we will continue to maintain our lead and our advantage over our adversaries and be able to defend our values if we don't recognize there's a shared responsibility. Now, yes, that means some hard conversations about how do we do it in a Western way? How do we have respect for rule of law? And how do we have transparency? And how do, what does it mean for us? I'm not implying that we adopt the Chinese model, but what I am implying is that we have to stop this division, this, this, this kind of assumption that, that we don't have a shared responsibility for the defense of these values. Many businesses that I talk to have their own intelligence operations. They have people, some of them like yourself, former CIA officers or FBI or Secret Service who are in their employ now. And clearly part of their mission is to figure out what the competition's doing. Um, I presume that there is at least um, an informal exchange of information between those industry players and government? Or am I wrong? Maybe I'm completely wrong. No, I, th I think you're right. I, th I would say though, that we have to do a better job of formalizing, not formalizing that exchange, but of making that exchange more robust. And I think that we have to share information both ways better than we do today. The government in particular is very secretive, right? We have an incredible amount of information, but for a whole host of reasons, we don't share that with private industry and private business because it's not considered fair. So we have to, but we, and that's, you know, there are real logical reasons for that. And, and the question though is, you know, part of the challenge when you work in government, Gene, is we have, what happens over time is you, you have, when you have failures or you have compromise, you have something that goes wrong, right? You put in place a regulation or a rule or a practice that prevents that from happening again. And, and the idea is that, um, that you're gonna you know, stop, you're not gonna repeat the same mistakes of the past. And it's, it's, a, it's a good logical you know, intent. The problem is over time, what happens is these rules and regulations and practices build up one on top of the other. And they become like scar tissue. They prevent flexibility. They, they prevent uh, um, uh, adaptability, right? And so what happens is the changes that we make within government are very small, you know, five or 10 degrees at a time. 
The world today requires us to make some pretty significant changes, at least in my opinion. And, and if we're going to do that, part of this is part of what we have to do is go back and revisit some of those rules and regulations and practices that put, have put in place. And I think that that should be part of this public dialogue about do these laws really protect us today? Do they still make sense? And in some cases, inevitably, we'll figure out, yes, they do. It's there for the right reasons. It's, those reasons are still the right ones. I suspect that in some other cases, we might say, you know what? The world is such that we have, we have greater interests here to defend against adversaries who are taking advantage of us and, and our, um, uh, our openness and our naivete. If you are sharing information with business and vice versa, it makes everything a lot less secret. It's harder to um, keep a close hold on sensitive things, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's, you certainly increase the risk of exposure of that information. When I, when I was at CIA and we created this a program called Station of the Future, part of the, the challenge, the intent behind that program was specifically to try and approach emerging challenges, this, this dynamic of this kind of rapidly changing world and to, and to come at it from a different angle, right? Instead of here are all the practices that we have in place, how do we make them better and how do we make them fit this new world? It was it was really a zero-based review. The idea was how do you, if we were going to build CIA today, if we were going to create it from scratch, how would we build it? How would we create it? Would we put into place the structures and rules and regulations and practices and tradecraft that we have, or would it be fundamentally different? And I think that you have to face this same question of what is what are secrets? How, do, how does government and private sector collaborate? I think you have to ask those questions from a zero-based review, not from a, what makes sense in today's world? The way the world is connected today, uh, the way that information moves about through society, who has information and who has access to information, what is the responsibility for safeguarding that information or sharing it or making it public? I think that that has to be a discussion that takes into account not just profit or not just noble intent like connecting the world or you know connecting the masses or pulling people out of poverty or whatever the, the intent may be it also has to take into account what how how can our adversaries use this how can we defend our interests what are our values that we have to defend and how do we defend them and i think that if you ask those from a zero based review you might find that you come up with some very different answers about the roles and responsibilities of government and government institutions in dealing with that kind of information and safeguarding it. So collaboration with business might be part of the new model. Is another part of it potentially much less reliance on human intelligence? Much less reliance on human intelligence for, I would say, everyday uh, intelligence needs. But here, so I, one of the debates that, that, that you hear a lot that I hear a lot is, you know, it, do we even need human intelligence, right? Can it be replaced? Can it? Um, I, personally, I, I don't think it can. Um, maybe someday. But here's, I think you first have to understand what, what is it that human intelligence provides us that signals intelligence or open source intelligence, you know, doesn't provide us. And I think when you talk about human, specifically, you talk about two things. You're talking about the idea of plans and intentions. What, what are the, what, the, the first thing is plans and intentions. And what that means is it's not just enough to know why an adversary uh, uh, or that an adversary made a decision or that they're going to make a decision. You want to understand the why and you want to understand the influencing, the, the influences behind that decision. So it's important to understand who has, who around that adversary, who around that leader has the ability to influence them, who has the ability to give them information, who, why, what is the context in which they are making decisions? And, and very infrequently, do you find that kind of context in things like open source intelligence or, um, or signals intelligence? Uh, I used Bellingcat as an example earlier, but uh, if you look at, for example, um, you know, the Bellingcat model, which is using incredible, you know, technology uh, uh, analysis of, open source intelligence to make, to, to make very impressive judgments. 
Um, the problem with it is that's great for trying to go back and reconstruct what happened. That's, that's great for trying to figure out who was responsible for an activity, but why they did that, why they made that decision, what their next decision might be or their next target might be, that's very rarely revealed from that kind of intelligence collection. And so unless you can get at the humans in the loop, it's oftentimes very hard to do that predictive intelligence about and, and to understand the, the causes and, the, and uh, uh, the factors that influence those decisions. So that's number one, plans and intentions. And number two is what influence operations or what we would call covert action, the ability to impact those activities, right? It's, it, it, you want to understand your adversaries and you wanna be able to predict what their behaviors are, but sometimes you also wanna be able to impact those. You want to be able to affect them. You wanna be able to change their decisions uh, or, or make them choose a different path or, or make different choices. And I think that that uh, very often, not exclusively, but very often requires humans in the loop as well in order to be able to plant those seeds to make those changes. And so if you believe as I do, that those two distinguishing factors are uniquely suited to human, then I think you need to maintain a human capability. But you also have to look at it and say, okay, well, if we can't do human everywhere, if we can't have a globally deployed cadre of officers who are operating undercover and managing this massive network of human spies who are providing us information, if we're gonna to have to be much more selective in how we do that, and if we're going to have to build teams around our capabilities to do very selective, targeted operations, getting at those plans and intentions or influence operations where they really make a significant difference, um, it, then, then I think you, you, you start to get a model for what human looks like in, you know, today and moving forward five or 10 years. That was Dwayne Norman, a 28-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency who is now working for the Defense Innovation Component of DOD. Fascinating. I was struck by Mr. Norman's comments of these days, you can't even go dark off the grid because the lack of a cell phone signal would confirm to suspicious enemy counterspies that you're up to no good. Yeah, technology's changing it all. You know, I asked him about the recent cable that went out from the CIA to every station and base around the world, about the number of informants who'd been captured and killed. I asked Wayne whether he thought technology had played a part in their discovery. His opinion was that maybe it had, but that bad tradecraft and perhaps bad leadership also played a role. No good. We'll be back to talk about QAnon. Stay with us. As I said earlier, we're going to talk a little bit more about how this QAnon cult has made inroads among some top former intelligence and military officials. Here's retired Army General Michael Flynn, for example, a one-time head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and you'll remember Donald Trump's first national security advisor, speaking at a recent rally saying, if we're going to have one nation under God, we have to have one religion under God. You're talking about... The United States of America, talking about the United States of America, because when Matthew mentioned it in the Bible, he wasn't talking about the physical ground that he was on. He was talking about something in the distance. So if we are going to have one nation under God, which we must, we have to have one religion, one, one, one nation under God and one religion under God, right? All of us together, working together. Flynn is hardly the only former U.S. intelligence or military official picking up the rhetoric and conspiracy theories of the QAnon cult, the main thrust of which seems to be that Donald Trump is still the rightful president of the United States. Jason Blazekas, who spent 10 years as a State Department extremism expert, wrote a piece recently calling this a dire national security threat. So I called him up. Jason Blazekas, welcome to Spy Talk. What is QAnon? Remind our listeners. And what makes it a threat to national security? So QAnon is a conspiracy theory that's been around for three, four years, um, started shortly after the um, election of President Donald J. Trump. 
And it's a, a set of individuals who believe that there is a deep state um, within the, the government that is controlled by um, powerful forces and that those powerful forces are engaged uh, at, in a pedophilia ring. And, and those that are QAnon subscribers believed that Donald J. Trump, the president of the United States, was elected to essentially um, uproot this uh, deep state um, conspiracy that was happening within the inner bowels of the U.S. government and that he was going to, to fix it and that pedophilia would be uh, defeated and those who were part of that deep state would lose their jobs within the government and would be removed forcefully if necessary. It's so bizarre. It's, it beggars the imagination that this would be a national security threat. It does, doesn't it? And in the FBI, and why um, is it? A, and yeah. why why is it a national security threat? So it's a national security threat for a few reasons. There have been individuals within the QAnon conspiracy movement who actually um, have carried out acts of violence. Um, and in 2019, in fact, because of the acts of violence, QAnon um, individuals who were subscribers to the conspiracy theory carried out, the FBI, Phoenix Field Office, essentially um, declared them to be a, a national security threat. Um, second, I would point to the events of January 6th. There were absolutely individuals who were um, at the insurrection on the 6th of January in Washington, D.C., who were uh, steeped deeply in the conspiracy theories of QAnon. And in fact, Ashley Babbitt, um, the young woman who lost her life, at the Capitol building was a QAnon supporter. And another really important reason why this matters is, is that conspiracy theories and disinformation often peddled by other governments and often peddled by individuals who may harbor malintent um, are trying to radicalize people um, across the board. Um, and, and that is very dangerous that you, you have this conspiracy theory circulating and people believe it and you have people turn away from, from the truth and they believe things that are completely um, rooted in falsehood. And, and to me, for me, that is really dangerous because it could change the contours in the way we, we think, um, the way we vote, um, the, the way we interact with each other. And I think it's really insidious in that sense. Mm hmm. It certainly is. Now, we haven't been able to researchers have not been able to really ascertain with certainty who's behind QAnon. Is that is that the state of play still? It is there. There is a high likelihood that it is an individual um, by the name of Ron Watkins. Um, him and his dad uh, ran um, a image board known as 8chan, where there is the dissemination of really toxic content. Um, they bill it as a place where free speech can exist. Um, that website is essentially was removed and a new one came in its place called 8kun. But a lot of people believe Ron Watkins um, was QAnon. And QAnon, for people who may not be familiar with it, um, essentially means Q, um, as in the security clearance queue that individuals may have, particularly if they're working at a place like the Department of Energy, usually people of queue clearance have some kind of access to, to nuclear related secrets. And anon means anonymous. And he was posting um, anonymously this so alleged QAnon, who could have been Ron Watkins, um, over um, Reddit, over 4chan, over um, 8kun, 8chan. Um, and that's where the name comes from as well. Um, Is this just a goof by these guys that it just sort of got out of control? Or is it, uh, do they have a political motivation? I haven't sensed that they, they have a political motivation. They're just agents of chaos. They, they are probably more likely agents of chaos than individuals that um, have a, a deep political leaning one way or another. Although I, I will say that if you follow um, Ron Watkinson's Twitter before it was taken down by Twitter on January 5th of 2021, um, he, uh, he was uh, an ardent supporter of, of President Trump. Um, he spoke very forcefully about the election being stolen from President Trump um, and put out conspiracy theories related to the election that we know um, weren't true based on um, evidence. Um, the fact that there have been multiple audits and, and if anything in Arizona, um, it's my understanding that um, President Biden actually got more votes um, after that audit than President Trump um, was able to secure votes. So he's an individual who has peddled conspiracy theories really um, in many ways to, to the benefit of, of President Trump. And there's some significant figures who have taken up the mantle of QAnon, 
who are, uh, you know, have national security, impressive national security backgrounds to some extent, you might say. Michael Flynn, the former head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, who was uh, Trump's national security advisor until he got into some trouble. Uh, and Michael Scheuer, who headed the CIA unit uh, going after bin Laden. These are two very prominent former intelligence officials who have taken up the QAnon mantle. Now, they can't believe in these bizarre theories of pedophilia and all that stuff. Um, so what's their game? You know, for Flynn, it's to me about remaining relevant um, and um, creating a, a following. Um, there, there is certainly, I think, an element to Flynn where he does believe he's fighting against some set of um, bureaucrats who he may label the deep state. Um, and I think that is something he may genuinely believe. Um, whether or not he, he believes in some of these more far-fetched conspiracy theories associated with QAnon, I think that's a, another story. Um, the same for, for Scheuer. What's dangerous, though, is that you have two individuals, one that was the former head of the DIA, as you said, and Scheuer, who was the head of Alex Station, essentially the station charged with hunting Osama bin Laden, who are spouting these conspiracy theories. Um, and they are individuals that that lend credibility to these conspiracy theories in ways that others may not because of the virtue of the positions that they once held. And that makes it really dangerous, irrespective of whether or not they believe it or not. Um, these are people who are in the system, deep into the system. And if they're saying that essentially QAnon conspiracy theories are, are right um, and they have been there before, that's going to have some level of resonance sure um, inside and outside of government. Sure it does. Um, now, to put it together in a nutshell, um, are they have are these two individuals who have just gone nuts or are they just incredibly cynical using this bizarre cult to uh, wage political warfare against Democrats and liberals and so on? I, I, I'd be reticent to, to clinically diagnose them as as crazy, Jeff, but I would say that it is certainly an element of, of them trying to um, create some chaos. Um, you know, there's been bridges burnt, um, you know, behind their wake that they can't, you know, return in, in many ways, right? So this could be part of um, a, a, a vedetta of sorts for them as well. And, and QAnon as a movement could be a really powerful mouthpiece that they can channel and direct in ways that create havoc for them to fulfill their personal vendettas that they may feel that, you know, the government has done them wrong some way. That's really unsettling. I'm talking to Jason Blazekas, a former State Department counterterrorism expert. Speaking of State Department, you worked at the State Department from 2008 to 2018. Did QAnon come up on your radar? Back no, not, then? <laughs> not not you know. QAnon was around as a conspiracy theory in 2018, but thankfully, um, at the State Department in the Counterterrorism Bureau. Um, it wasn't something that we were examining um, closely. Uh, we were looking primarily at groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda during my time period at, at state. I certainly was aware of it as an individual, um, and I was very aware of sort of the grandfather conspiracy theory that um, preceded. Uh, the QAnon conspiracy theories, and that is, of course, Pizzagate, which happened, you know, in, in our backyard because I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time when the Comet Ping Pong Pizza um, yeah. was subject of a conspiracy theorist, uh, um, you know, brutal break in. Um, and thankfully, he was arrested before anybody could get hurt. Do you sense that uh, the government is taking QAnon seriously? I think it's taking it more seriously um, than than the last administration. Um, I, I think as part of an initiative to, to make the U.S. government um, perhaps more uh, immunized against the power of conspiracy theories and disinformation. The uh, Biden administration has put people in place who are trying to actually um, battle against the spread of conspiracy theories. So, for instance, um, the, the cyber unit, CISA, um, which is a, a subunit within DHS, has uh, Jennifer Easterly there now. And you know she, she is looking at the, the challenge of um, election security, which is really intimately tied to the spread of conspiracy theories, because we know from past elections in 2016, for instance, that we had foreign entities who tried to influence the um, electorate. electorate. Um, and, and we saw the, the Russian Federation tried to do that. So we 
have people in place now who are going to try to do battle against the scourge of disinformation because disinformation allows for conspiracy theories to thrive. Thrive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and, and we've got a fair amount of evidence that the Russians, Chinese, Iranians, you name it, North Koreans uh, have latched on to these conspiracy theories and are pushing them. Uh, they they seem to be uh, a self licking ice cream cone now. Uh, they don't need to don't need to push it a lot because millions right. of Americans have embraced these cults. Um, we we see a link between white uh, white power extremists, neo Nazis, and so on, uh, and the QAnon conspiracy. Isn't that right? I mean, we saw a demonstration of that Capitol riot on January 6th. Yeah, you, you saw this confluence of, of white supremacists where you saw um, horrible images like the, the gallows hung up um, in front of the Capitol, an individual wearing an Auschwitz uh, uh, sweatshirt um, co-mingled with conspiracy theorists who are adhering to QAnon theories. And QAnon theorists, absolutely, there are individuals within the QAnon community who actually embrace um, white nationalists and white supremacist ideology. Now, that's not to say every QAnon conspiracy theorist is a racist. That's not true at all. There's you know regular people who have unfortunately become duped and part of the QAnon movement, but they certainly are. Um, you know, we're co-located in Washington D.C. and and a lot of white supremacist groups in the aftermath of the insurrection. Um, we're, we're thinking about how could they co-opt QAnon conspiracy theorists into their own movements. They saw mm-hmm. them as potentially um, recruits. And that's, for me, quite dangerous to think about how um, a, a bad actor or white supremacist could take a QAnon um, believer and, and try to bring them into their, their orbit. Because clearly people who believe these things are missing something and they're trying to look for some level of fulfillment. Right. And that makes them susceptible to recruitment. Mm-hmm. You know, we now know that the uh, conspiracy that was hatched uh, at a hotel in Washington to uh, abort the inauguration or the certification of Joe Biden as president included a former Army psychological operations specialist. Do we have any or do you know of any evidence uh, that Guys like that, a PSYOP specialists uh, or uh, top tier hackers have also gotten involved with QAnon. So I think there are absolutely individuals within those milieus who have subscribed to the QAnon conspiracy theory. And I think that example you gave is perhaps one of the the best examples who um, are individuals that have certain skill sets who know how to manipulate a target audience to try to get that target audience to to do something that may be not necessarily in their own personal interest, but is for something greater um, than themselves. And and those kinds of individuals are are very dangerous and and are part of these kinds of movements. There are certainly individuals of all different stripes and backgrounds um, QAnon is a diverse movement of individuals, um, doctors, lawyers, um, anybody you could think of with an occupation has had somebody within that movement, um, in that movement. And I think that's an example of how cross-cutting of movement it is as well. It, it's not based on socioeconomic status. It's not based on one kind of occupation. Although, of course, you know, the, the driver behind it is this idea that there is somebody within the bowels of the U.S. government who has this Q clearance, who is part of the military intelligence operation, um, who is doing these things, uh, right? So at its core, there's that element, too, within the sort of the intelligence function, right? And people mm-hmm. who have that background, like Flynn, Scheuer, um, et cetera, actually play up, I think, in many ways, that, that element to it, unfortunately. It gives mm-hmm. it more street cred. Right, of course. Uh, do you sense that uh, other than these notorious personalities of Flynn uh, and so on, that, that they have uh, been able to get a following in the intelligence agencies, more so, people like them inside the bowels of the uh, intelligence community? I, I've not seen hard proof of that. But for me, as someone who thinks about um, a wide array of threats, to incl- include insider threats, um, the fact that you had Flynn and Scheuer, um, both relatively recent graduates of the intelligence community, Scheuer a little more dated than Flynn, of course, um, you know, they, they certainly have had their acolytes, right? Um, they've had individuals who um, they, they, they nurture throughout the ranks of, of the intelligence community, and, and they may have individuals who remain hardcore believers of, you know, Scheuer and, and Flynn. And when I think about 
insider threats. And I think about how um, individuals of the intelligence community can go wrong. Um, I, I think about sort of like, what are the motivations for people to do things, right? And the old kind of mice, money, ideology, coercion, ego. And, you know, I think here we can replace also as we think about threats, um, internal threats, we can replace coercion with conspiracy theory because I do think there, there are certain individuals within the US intelligence community who probably do believe these things. And if you look at what was just announced last week in a news report that you have a significant number of people within the intelligence community who are essentially anti-vaxxers and who aren't going to take the vaccine, um, there are these, um, you know, intertwining of, of theories, you know, QAnon believers also are, in many cases, anti-vaxxers. So I also worry that if we have these anti-vaxxers, we very well could have QAnon conspiracy theorists within the ranks of the U.S. government. And we know from January 6th that there are certainly anti-authoritarian, anti-government, and um, white supremacists who are within the ranks of the military. That's been um, documented um, significantly. You know, the, the intelligence world and, and the reporting on this is, is far less significant um, than we've seen with sort of how the military may have individuals who have been co-opted by white supremacists and anti-authoritarian groups like the Oath Keepers and Three Percenters. Yeah, you know, uh, th those people now worry me less than the insidiousness of QAnon capturing the hearts and minds, if you will, of people in intelligence and police. Uh, I, I just shake my head that people like police would resist vaccines. If, if people like police are resisting vaccines, it doesn't seem to be a far leap from there to embracing bizarre conspiracy theories. Oh, it's, it's not a far leap at, at all. And, you know, whether or not somebody's in law enforcement, the military, um, the intelligence community, you know, there are a lot of really smart people um, for one reason or another who have believed some of the QAnon conspiracy theories. You know, people like um, um, Travis View, who has the QAnon podcast, call it a big tent conspiracy theory. That's because there are so many different elements to QAnon's various conspiracy theories that could be attractive to any one individual, depending on sort of their worldview, what they follow, what they research, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think that's what makes it potentially appealing and, and has um, demonstrated that it has wide um, resonance. Um, and even though QAnon, whoever QAnon was, like we were talking before, possibly Ron Watkins, um, hasn't posted in nearly a year, you still have people gathering in places just like last week in Dallas, Texas, thinking that JFK Jr. and JFK were coming back, right? You had more than a, probably uh, you know, close to a thousand people there um, based on the, the pictures I saw. Um, and, and it spoke to them for some reason, that theory, right? Um, and, and that's that was what so worries bizarre. me. Yeah, it worries that me that these theories will speak to people in the intelligence community. I mean, you know, it's pretty bizarre talking about, you know, pederasts, you know, running the Democratic Party. Uh, but uh, thousands of people gathering in Dallas expecting the return of John F. Kennedy Jr. That's really bizarre. And they stayed there after the event as well. Well, you sort of throw up your hands and, and say, what's, what's the solution to this? Yeah, and there, there are no easy solutions. I've been thinking about conspiracy theories and disinformation for a really long time. And I think... Um, we have to acknowledge that conspiracy theories have been with us as a as a human society for time immemorial. It's just you know the advent and ubiquity of the internet, I think, and social media that has allowed it to propagate at, at warp speed in ways in which older conspiracy theories obviously could not. It was word of mouth, right? And and what can we do about that? You know, to me, I think largely this is a, a challenge um, at the the really early level of of education where we have to continue to develop critical thinking skills um, in, in our youth, because we, we need to think about how we can immunize our youth from these kinds of really dangerous, toxic theories that have been spread through disinformation. And that means, you know, having um, experts um, go into classrooms and talk about things like digital and media literacy, and that the government should be investing in, in those kinds of, um, you know, campaigns, um, funding uh, nonprofits and, and educational institutions to talk about one's own media literacy. So they, well, they know and understand where like good sources of information can come from. Well, good luck with that. I mean, you've got large pockets of, uh, uh, of this country are resisting mask mandates in school to combat 
vaccines of, to combat coronavirus. So how can you, I, I can't imagine the school districts in the red states accepting government, outside government experts and NGOs to come in and, and uh, teach about misinformation and cult theories. They, they would be seen as some sort of Gestapo by uh, these, uh, these uh, red state hotheads. So well, I, I think your point's well taken. I mean, we saw, you know, in this last uh, midterm election, you know, some of the, the challenges with respect to how educational systems and parents and teacher relationships became a, a leverage point for politicians who ended up winning in, in states like Virginia. Right. So I, I think, you know, your point's well taken. Um, perhaps I'm, I'm an optimist and believe that, you know, in, in the end, education can prevail um, and defeat um, falsehoods and conspiracy theories, but it could be a little bit naive on my part. That's not to say that's the only solution, of course. I mean, there's things Silicon Valley can do to try to check the spread of conspiracy theories that they've been reticent to do, um, for instance. And I think, you know, they recognize that they have to do better. Um, and my hope is that they will do better. If not, people can walk away from those platforms and affect their bottom line dollar. Um, and we, we have to perhaps also explore ways in which um, protections have been put in place um, where it has really immunized social media companies from you know, legal liability, for instance. And there, there could be that um, way in which Congress can act to try to increase the, the stakes for those companies that they allow for unchecked um, conspiracy theories to spread on their platform. Because there have been documented examples of people becoming radicalized because of the way the algorithms are, are recommending things to people, whether or not it's on you know, the next YouTube video, the, the person to follow on Twitter, or you know, the, the Facebook page to join. Well, I guess uh, traditionally uh, we'll be following the traditional route, I should say, uh, uh, that the FBI and police have taken over the years dealing with extremists. They wait for a plot for violence to develop, uh, and that's the trigger which uh, gets them involved. I hope we don't get to a place where we have QAnon uh, encouraging mass violence against government buildings and individuals, but it seems to me we're we're awfully close. Um, we're going to have to leave it at that. Uh, I guess all we can say, Jason, is is we'll have to hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's all we can do. And Jeff, it was a pleasure to be on your podcast. It was great having you, Jason. And I, I, I unfortunately think we're going to have to be talking about this some more with you yeah, down the line. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Um, there, there is so much to, to explore. And we, we just scratched the surface today. We did. Anyway, thanks. We'll see you again soon. That's extremism expert Jason Blazakis. He's also a senior advisor at the Sufan Group, a global intelligence analysis and advisory company headquartered in New York. Gene? You know, the two of you talked about education as being a solution to mis- and disinformation. And not only is it controversial, as you suggested, it also takes a long time and we need something fast. And we have seen a lot of study and a number of reports, including one out just this week from the Aspen Institute. But the proposed solutions aren't easy and it isn't clear how effective any of them are going to be. Yeah, there's been a lot of critique of that report. It's just going to take too long. It's too vague. It's a think tank thing. I think for now, we have to rely, uh, or we'll fall back on the FBI waiting for uh, terrorism or violent plots to develop, and then they can move in. But you can't change the minds of millions of people who have adhered to uh, this cult thinking. So it's, it's upsetting, but that's the way it is. And that's the way it is this week on the Spy Talk podcast. I'm Jeff Stein. And remember, you can subscribe to Spy Talk uh, on Substack. You also can follow each of us on Twitter or both of us on Twitter. I'm or anywhere. <laughs> That's true. See Just you follow next us week. down the street. That's fine. No, we're everywhere. <laughs> we're at the grocery store. See you later. I'm Jean Meserve. Thanks a lot for joining us. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.